Hello! And welcome to the Evil Empires edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We have so many empires to talk about this week. We are going to talk about the empire from Star Wars. No, we're not. We're going to... We're gonna- <laughs> I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of the Huffington Post, who is a very good singer. (laughs) I'm here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. And Anna, can you just give us a quick rundown of the evil empires we're going to talk about on this (laughs) show? (laughs) Well, we are going to be talking about the Murdoch family. We are going to be talking about Jeff Bezos. And we are going to be talking about the Saudi royal family. And at the end of this show... If you make it through to the end, which I hope you do, because it's pretty cool. We are going to rank them in terms of evil. (laughs) (laughs) That is all coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I'm obsessed with this story. Which story are you obsessed by? The New York Times Magazine story about the Murdoch family. It's long. It's long. It reads like a novel. It spans the globe. It hopscotches from Australia to Britain to the United States. And if you like Succession, and both Emily and I love Succession, and if I get my druthers, we're going to have an entire Slate Plus extra yeah. Succession recap thing going on when season two comes out. Suddenly you like, oh my God, Succession is so boring compared to real life. Succession just rips off the Murdoch story, this New York Times Magazine story. I feel like they did this on purpose almost. It's to prepare us for Succession. Yeah. is the same as the setup scene of the fictional show, Succession. It starts right. with... Murdoch, 80-something years old, in the hospital. They think he's going to die. All the siblings, all his children rush in. All of his grandchildren rush in. Jerry Hall, the model fourth wife. There are a lot of model wives in this story. Like, it's quite uncommon. In fact, I think there wasn't a single wife in the story who wasn't a model at some point, pretty much. (laughs) The women in the Murdoch family are, I mean, as the story lays out, they're of little consequence. Although Wendy... Deng may or may not be a spy. Wendy Deng was the third wife, and she is pretty consequential. Anna Murdoch has been pretty consequential. The really powerful Murdoch was Rupert's mom, who lived to the age of like 99 or 101 or something like that, and was this force of nature and the only person who could tell Rupert what to do. Interestingly, not in this story that we're talking about. Not in this story. I was not surprised to learn that Rupert Murdoch's father was like an old school white nationalist who wrote about keeping Australia 
um, white. white. Yes. And, and <laughs> Very explicitly. This is the real story because Murdoch was always understood when I was growing up in Britain as being, you know, a right-wing political force. And then he kind of became globalized and he owned 21st Century Fox and the whole world became sort of richer. And somehow Murdoch as a political animal, that story it became less salient. Even as Fox became a force, people were like, well, Murdoch is so much bigger than just Fox. And I think what this story really does is it shows just how political Murdoch is and how he has transformed politics in at least three different countries to the right. And how, you know, as you say, his dad was a white nationalist. His son, Lachlan, is probably to the right of Rupert, is putting a bunch of white nationalists on Fox News Australia, has now taken over Fox News, is running Fox Corporation here in America, and has made it. And again, this is one of those things you you kind of, it's true when you think about it, but you don't necessarily think about it, has moved Fox significantly to the right compared to the Roger Ailes era. Yeah, Roger Ailes comes something. Roger Ailes comes out in this story as a moderate. Right, there, there's the, the example of Sean Hannity. Ailes wouldn't let Sean Hannity, I think, attend a, or air a political rally. But now in the new Fox era, he got to do it. And I guess Fox management sort of gave him a slap on the wrist for it, but it it didn't matter. Well, Hannity I mean, just... appeared at a Trump campaign just mm-hmm. before the midterms and literally went up on stage and campaigned with the president. And everyone at Fox was like, eh. Yeah. It was shocking to me, I guess. I mean, I sort of knew the Murdochs influenced British politics. And I obviously know about Fox, but the sheer scope of this one family and this one man to sort of change global dynamics and global politics was disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about like what he in some sense took advantage of and exacerbated because I think back to like the 90s where you had the Rush Limbaugh era. So you definitely had this strain of very far right thought. But then when Fox took it over, I think because of what you can do with 24-hour television, they were just able to amplify it to such an extent. And then I think as the internet then took over, then it just went in all of these other directions that now I, I feel like in a way this kind of new ultra, ultra, ultra conservative Fox is trying to catch up with. Yeah. I think I think that one of the things the story shows is that Murdoch has been extremely good at keeping up with evolutions in media. When I remember the famous Sun headline, it's the Sun what won it for the Tories back in, you know, I think that was the major election in the early 90s. And it was. I mean, I, there, there was no doubt that The Sun, which was the big mass market newspaper in the UK, you know, elected a conservative government and then caused Brexit. The Sun was, was. I mean, it wasn't the only cause of Brexit, but the Brexit vote was close. The Sun was a very important part of the campaign for Brexit. And Murdoch has always been very clear that he wanted Brexit for reasons I don't entirely understand. So that was what was also really striking to me about the piece was the interplay between the political influence and then what happens to regulations and what happens to their ability to make deals, like starting with Margaret Thatcher, letting him buy, I think, the London Times and sort of like complete his like trifecta of owning the British media press. And then in the United States, you know, there was a lot of talk about how when he sells 21st Century Fox to Disney, that just basically, that the antitrust scrutiny of that deal was cursory at best, compared to the AT&T Time Warner deal where the US government was very aggressively against it, even though it's hard to really 
come up with a coherent antitrust outlook where you would be aggressively against AT&T Time Warner, but absolutely don't care about Disney 21st Century Fox. I mean, the implication was Trump was trying to shut down that deal, not only because he, you know, hates CNN, but also because of his relationship with Rupert Murdoch, and Murdoch didn't want that deal to happen. As the article shows, like, basically every single antitrust decision in Australia, in the US, has broken Murdoch's way. The only one that didn't was his attempt to buy control of sky in Europe. I thought that the the piece said the reason Murdoch wanted Brexit was because he felt like the EU regulations were too taxing on him and he wanted to like be free of that. It's entirely possible. But I think yeah, he also has just this nativist Exactly. you know, um tendencies which, you know, you kind of it's weird. There's an irony there that he's this global jet setter. He happily got himself U.S. citizenship so that he could buy the Fox network. You know, he he's a billionaire. And yet, despite all of this, he has this very strong and I think genuine political conviction in favor of like nativism and populism and all of the things that his class would normally object to. Which is clearly much more aligned with the son Lachlan as opposed to the son James, which I thought was interesting as well in this article. A, it's just fascinating, this kind of family dynamics, but also thinking about where Fox is going. Because the average Fox News listener is like 65 years old. So it's clear that they need a digital strategy. They need to think about what Fox News is going to be in the future. And it seemed like James had kind of an idea, but that was in part to become more moderate, which then clearly Rupert did not want. And now it seems like Lachlan has really you know, kind of not taken over, but his influence is really strong. Well, no, he has taken over. Yeah. He's the CEO of Fox Corp. He's appointed Hope Hicks, who's, you know, famously Donald Trump's right-hand woman, to be his chief of staff at Fox Corp. And he has announced that he's basically creating a digital version of Fox News, which is going to be much more like the crazy, opinionated primetime part of Fox News, but 24 hours a day. And it's going to be over the internet. And because it's over the internet, it's going it's going to be largely unregulated by the FCC. And he can basically go as far right as he wants. And no one's going to be able to stop him. There's one thing I wanted to go back to you on Murdoch becoming a US citizen. And I that just like, I don't know why, but it, I knew this story already. But again, kind of blew my mind that this is perhaps the best if there is an argument to be made against immigration. <laughs> Here we have it in Fox News's founder and creator, Rupert Murdoch. Like, if Reagan hadn't fast-tracked his immigration status, our country would indeed be better off. Argue against that. You can't. can't. (laughs) Just saying. Apple Card is the perfect cash-back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's talk about another media mogul, 
the owner of the Washington Post, Mr. Jeff Bezos, who has basically been the anti-Murdoch when it comes to owning an important media outlet. He has done everything that a media owner is supposed to do, which is step back and basically not get involved while being supportive and writing occasional checks when necessary. And he got a divorce or is getting a divorce from his wife, Mackenzie. And that seems to be very amicable. I mean, at least that's one thing he has in common in, with Rupert is that but he's only on his first divorce. If he has to catch up with Rupert, he has to have like three more. He has time. Rupert's pretty old. <laughs> but the one thing that, that he did do is he got married to Mackenzie in Washington state, which is a common property state without any kind of prenup or anything like that. And so upon their split, she was and is entitled to half of the joint property. And they just announced on Twitter that basically she's getting a quarter of the joint property and she's not, and she's giving up all of her interest in the Washington Post, all of her interest in Blue Origin, which is his space exploration company. And she's even giving up all of the votes in the 25% of the Amazon shares that she is retaining. She's like, you know what, Jeff, you can vote all of these shares on my behalf. This is interesting to me. Why? Uh, <laughs> this is this is interesting to me because I think that what they did was they found something that made them it was like the Pareto optimal outcome here. Let's say that she gets her 35 billion. Let's say like roughly that it winds up splitting that she gets 35 billion and he gets 105 billion. You start with him getting half, 70 billion, and her getting a quarter, 35 billion. Then you're like, what do we do with the extra quarter? And Mackenzie Bezos, being like a normal human being, looks at the idea of having $70 billion rather than $35 billion and goes like, this is not going to improve my life in any iota, basically. In fact, it will conceivably make my life worse rather than better. Whereas... Jeff looks at the idea of being worth 105 billion compared to being worth 70 billion. Goes, yeah, that's better because he's Jeff Bezos and he's you know one of these people who loves to be incredibly rich and the richest man in the world. And that, and he does actually retain now his status as being the richest man in the world, and that's on some level important to him. So giving him that extra 25 percent makes him happier without making Mackenzie less happy, and so it it kind of makes emotional sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. Clearly, like, they're both handling this like adults. They they have children. It makes sense. Like, if it clearly having any type of control of this company has never seemed to be a priority for her, it doesn't make any sense why she would kind of jeopardize that future of being co-parents for money that, I mean, she's going to have $35 billion. She'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, so she'll be the fourth richest woman in the world once the divorce is complete and number 23 on Bloomberg's billionaires list. So the, she's not making literally any sacrifice here financially. She, I mean, the way you laid it out, Felix, it makes it seem like Jeff Bezos is the one who's being absurd, you know, or... or Well, he is, right? Not really. Yeah. I mean... Well, I mean, I guess I, I understand why he would want control of his companies. Well, I mean, he has... I mean, the fact is he doesn't have voting control over Amazon. The reason that he controls Amazon is because he's the chairman and the CEO and Jeff Bezos and the founder, <laughs> and everyone is just going to do whatever he wants. And it doesn't matter how many votes he has. But, you know... I guess maybe having more votes is better than having less votes for him, just like having more money is better than having less money. 
I mean, oh, one thing I was thinking was, um, so according to what I read in Fortune this morning coming in, there are only 244 female billionaires in the world. And according to Fortune, only a quarter of them are, quote unquote, self-made, which I feel like is this like weird term that gets thrown around self-made. So is Mackenzie Bezos, would we argue she's a self-made billionaire? or is uh, she? Yeah, it's, an, it's a very interesting question. And it comes back to this idea of exactly the same rationale for splitting marital property 50-50, that this is a couple who, between them, you know, created this fortune and this empire. And it's impossible to tell from looking in from the outside, like, how instrumental she was to that. I mean, she's clearly a a, Uh, a very smart woman. Yeah, I think we can pretty clearly say that she was not as instrumental as he was. I'm sorry, like, like, that just doesn't make any sense. I'm all for hmm. her having, you know, being well cared for for the rest. You know, she has enough money to obviously take care of herself for the rest of her life. But this is his company. Like, yes, she was there at the beginning. But come on. We all know, like, from everything that has happened since that clearly this is his idea. He's been the person who's been able to make this into the company that he is. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I think more of it should go to him. I'm not saying more of it shouldn't go to him. I'm asking the question, is it the same company? Is he the same kind of mogul without the support of this wife for years and years and years? I mean, marriage is really important and the support you get from a spouse cannot be discounted so easily as like he did this all himself. He didn't do it all himself. He had the support of a good wife and, you know, who's taking care of his kids and doing other things. I think at the beginning of the company, she was really instrumental helping. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact is we, we can't know the counterfactual know. of mm-hmm. like how successful Amazon would have been absent Mackenzie Bezos. What we do know is that becoming this rich, this influential, this this dominating is like catching lightning in a bottle. That you could have run the Jeff Bezos Amazon story ten thousand times, and the chances of it coming out as amazingly successful as it did would be like it would happen once or twice. And so like take Mackenzie Bezos out of the equation, he would not be this rich. We know that. It would have been one of the other 9,998 outcomes. He does owe basically his insane wealth and dominance to her on some level. Yeah, I agree You could say that with so many factors, though. And I'm not saying that she didn't play a role. I'm just saying I think that the outcome that we currently have makes the most sense. And I don't think a 50-50 split, honestly, would have been fair. Fair to whom? Fair to him. I mean, if you want to step back, none of this is fair to anyone. Like, no one should have $36 billion. It is ridiculous. Even a billion dollars is kind of ridiculous, right? right? I mean, maybe the state of Washington should have just, like, put a kibosh on all those billions. I mean, for me, I was kind of... (laughs) Expropriated his his property. Taken their cut. Couldn't have done it without That that works really well. But I was was kind of looking forward before, before this split was announced i was kind of looking forward in the back of my head to the property being split the other way that basically mckenzie would get 75 percent of the stake in amazon (laughs) jeff would keep blue origin and the washington post and his state status as chairman and ceo of amazon he would still control amazon he would still be massively wealthy but like he doesn't actually need that stock that stock doesn't help him. That's not how law works. We don't base it on <laughs> what someone needs. <laughs> I'm sorry, like that. No, no, that's... but this is no. But you've just admitted that this is not a legal thing. This is them coming up, 
just the two of them, basically, with whatever they think makes sense between them, right? It's not that he had any legal obligation to do this, but then again, neither did she. She had every legal right to 50%. That is true. She had every legal right. So, like, and he had every legal right to give her 75% if he was so inclined. Wait, you don't think Jeff Bezos needs his Amazon stock? So he could have no stock in the company. I mean, he would have. He could have. Mod- if if you look at like when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, remember he had sold all of his Apple stock when he left the first time. Mm-hmm. He comes back as interim CEO. They give him like a dollar salary and like a relatively small chunk of stock. But yeah, he controlled that company with absolute control the second time around without owning a particularly large amount of stock in it. He ha- his shares in Disney were worth more than his shares huh. in Apple. So you don't need to, you know, the fact that he owns a lot of shares in Amazon makes him rich, but it doesn't give him control. The thing that gives him control is his status as the visionary, the founder, the chairman, the CEO, and all the rest of it. So with just thinking about Facebook for a second, just because I had never thought of this before, but isn't the whole thing with Mark Zuckerberg running Facebook that everyone complains about is that he has all this stock in the company? Yeah, he has a dual class share structure. So Mm -hmm. even though he has a minority interest in the company, he actually does have voting control and control of the board. That he is not the case need with that Bezos. Under your argument, because he's the visionary and the leader and the blah blah blah. No, blah. Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of questions over his leadership abilities, over his abilities as CEO. I have made the case myself that he should resign as CEO. That he's actually a very bad CEO of Facebook okay. in its current place. Right, but no one is making that case about Bezos. Right, right. but I guess the okay. thing would be, what if something changed at the company, and then all of a sudden people were making that case about Jeff Bezos? Well, then him having that. The amount of voter control would, in fact, be important. But he yeah, doesn't. Like no, a, but his his voting stop. control is is small. It is no, and I agree with you, and that is and that is very true. But in your, we're dealing with a lot of counterfactuals. Here. <laughs> but in the counterfactual, he just kind of gives up everything, like all of his stakes in. Amazon. Or, or maybe, or maybe, maybe what he does is a bit like what he wound up doing is that he gives her seventy five percent of the economic interest, but he keeps the voting rights. Like, there's lots of ways you can do it. I just think it's interesting to me that he wound up basically saying, I want as much as I can get. And she was like, yeah, whatever, fine. Because that's part of his brand. He needs to keep, like you were saying, he needs to keep up appearances. He needs to be like the richest guy or the second richest guy. And like, he can't take that. He can't take that L. It's one of the reasons why his philanthropy has never got off the ground is because if he gives too much money away, he won't be the richest man in the world anymore. Ugh, I can't. (laughs) Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of incredibly wealthy people, yeah, Saudi he, royal family. The Saudi royal family. <laughs> this is a perfect segue because Jeff yeah. Bezos is worth $105 billion, which is completely insane. But that is less than the annual profits of Saudi Aramco, which is basically owned by the Saudi royal family. And in fact, the annual profits are only half of, what is it, $244 billion of earnings that Aramco makes every year. And it all goes in one way or another to the Saudi royal family. It's just the most insane cash gusher that the world has ever seen. Yeah, it really is fascinating. So uh, 
Saudi Aramco is going to be coming to market with uh, a bond. And as a result of that, they had to actually release financials. And this was really the first time that people have had to really look at the numbers of this company. And, and it really was pretty fascinating. I mean, partly their, their, yeah, their net income is huge. Now, the amount they pay in taxes is also like $100 billion. And then they also pay like another like tremendous amount in a dividend to the government as well as uh, a lot of this money will essentially, well, all of it basically at this stage going to the government. So, And the government is the family. There's no difference. Right. But it's, yeah, it, it really is interesting. And it's, it's interesting to compare it to other oil companies that just generates like far more barrels a day that it's creating. It's, I think it's also interesting just what's the Saudi royal family is right now trying to do and thinking about what they want to make this company in the future. Because essentially, this company has always just been like, basically, it, this is a part of the state. This is how the state funds itself. But you clearly do see Mohammed bin Salman now trying to alter this a little bit, just in terms of the relationship between the company. And he's trying to alter how the company accesses financing. And then that, in turn, alters his ability to make changes in Saudi Arabia. But why does Saudi Aramco need financing? This is the thing I, I don't was, I understand. I had that question too, but I thought it was a dumb question. But it's because it is, no, it is literally, it is literally gushing cash. They, you know, they're raising $10 billion. They make that in five minutes. Yeah, well, like, why? What, why do they need to issue bonds at all? Why do they need to pay interest when they're pretty much just taking cash out of the ground every minute of the day? Yeah, that, why? So, why, Anna? Yeah, so few reasons. <laughs> One, because they want to diversify their funding sources. Part of the reason that they were initially going to be listing part of Saudi Aramco was because they want to diversify their funding sources. So Saudi Aramco itself doesn't need any funding because it's just this gusher of cash. The Saudi royal family, the Saudi government, has basically one main funding source, which is Aramco, and they want a different funding source, which is something else. But I don't understand how Saudi Aramco issuing a bond changes that because the Saudi royal family still only gets all of its money from Saudi Aramco. Because the issue is that, yes, right now they are getting money because Saudi Aramco is simply like just basically generating revenue and profit. But I also just one thing I want to point out when you're looking at how much cash they're generating, you have to also look at how that is related to oil prices because they were basically barely breaking even when you had oil prices significantly lower. So this is the issue. This is not a... I I do understand. I genuinely do understand that the Saudi government wants to be able to get money from somewhere other than Saudi Aramco. And if they could like sell stock in Saudi Aramco and use the proceeds to buy, you know, some other assets, I understand that as well. What I don't understand is how Saudi Aramco issuing a bond in any way diversifies the Saudi government's funding sources. Well, and one, the Saudi government actually already does have other means of accessing capital because obviously there are bonds on the market from the government. But the issue here is it is about diversifying Saudi Aramco's funding sources because when they're looking forward and they're saying, okay, what do we think is going to happen to the amount of oil that is going to be consumed? They're looking and they're saying, okay, we're thinking we're going to hit peak oil in like 10, 15 years, they want to start to diversify the company. And that's part of the reason they're doing this Okay, so this is a different day. Now you're saying we're not talking about the government diversifying its funding sources anymore. We're talking about Aramco saying, like, we don't need funding right now because we're just 
gushing cash. But at some point, we might hit peak oil or oil prices might go down or something or something or something. And at that point, it would be useful for us to have a stake in the petrochemical industry, which is still pretty oil-based, but whatever. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the proceeds from this bond and put it into a petrochemical company, which I kind of understand that as well, except for as I say, they don't need to issue a bond because they get that $10 billion just out of the ground in about, you know, 17 seconds. Well, no. <laughs> like, right now, the, the Saudi Arabia, the entire economy is essentially based mostly on this one company. So they want to make this more sustainable. This also has to do with who currently the they are buy they're they are raising this bond so that they can buy this stake in this petrochemical company. And the reason they're doing that is because the petrochemical company is owned by the private, the private the public investment fund. So, uh, really, what this is is and no, and I realize like it none is, of this is making any no, sense point, to me. Or okay, Emily. so the issue is they are raising a bond so that they can buy this stake in Sabic, which is owned by their. Sovereign wealth fund. It this looks. Is, it feels like money just going around in circles from honestly, one bit of the family to another. Part of it is. Part of it. You're you're completely right. And part of the reason that this becomes so confusing and talking about is it the government? Is it the company? Is it, because granted, when you're talking about this type of economy, it is so hard to draw these lines. But this is basically the way for them to get more funding. Who's they? This is the way for. I would say I'm going to say Mohammed bin Salman because he is like the person who is behind all of this. Okay. He wants to get more money into the public investment fund so that. It can be funding a lot of the things that he wants to be investing in, in terms of creating more entertainment. No, and you're completely (laughs) right. And you're completely right. So in terms of he wants to build this tourist industry and this entertainment industry, also because he's trying to have this sodification of the economy. So he has this idea that by doing this, he's going to create all these jobs. Uh, So I think the big picture here, like... We can get hung up on, you know, where the money is moving around in circles. But the big picture is that what he's doing with this bond is he's bringing money in from outside the country. That up until now, the only real way that Saudi Arabia got money coming into Saudi from outside the country was by selling oil. Now... He, he's selling a different thing. He's selling bonds. Now, the bonds are ultimately backed by oil, so it's not, you know, that difference. Well, they but have sovereign debt. I mean. But he's getting, exactly, he's getting another, like, funding stream of financial investors buying financial instruments, and that money is going into his pockets. And that explains why, you know, David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, is in Saudi, like, more or less as we speak right now, like, chumming up with them and making friends. And because he's like, oh, great, now you guys are bond issuers. You issue sovereign bonds, and now you're issuing Aramco bonds, and you're going to become part of the global economy, and you're going to become more integrated. And just imagine all of the profits that Goldman Sachs can make by doing this. And as... Emily is just look sitting here with a look of absolute disgust on her face, going, "But these guys are just, it just terrible I, people." Does anyone remember Anan Gerardaras was with us? It wasn't that long ago, and we and the Saudis were having this big, you know, Davos in the desert conference, and all the banks made a big show of saying we're not going because everyone was so outraged that they had killed a journalist, Khashoggi. Not to mention the hundreds of thousands of people they've killed in Yemen. Yes. And yeah. And no. now it's like, they're like, look how rich we are. And Goldman Sachs is like, awesome. And like, everything's okay. It's- oh, and can we also <laughs> just mention, just because it ought to be dropped in here somewhere, that they spent $450 million on a fake Leonardo and now seem to have lost it. <laughs> 
Like, literally, it fell down the back of a sofa. They promised it to the Louvre, and the Louvre is like, well, we're having a Leonardo <laughs> show. Could we have this painting? And they're like, uh, yeah, about that painting. <laughs> The only thing I could think of, I mean, they said in their financial statement that, you know, they laid out their risks and climate change is obviously this can't go on. This won't go on. Right. And they're they're a one trick pony. So, I mean, this country is this obscene wealth. It's not going to last. Yeah. I mean, it's I think it's going to be a bad ending. The, it is definitely it does appear that, you know, if they want to have any type of economy and country and stability, that's the issue, too, mm-hmm. because part of the reason they've been able to maintain stability as long as they have is because. You have cradle to grave benefits. You have people who basically don't have to work, you know, or show up at their jobs. And the problem is, if all of a sudden you're not as profitable down the line and you haven't done anything prior to that to set yourself up, you're going to have tremendous instability. Well, I mean, I think I'm with Emily on this one. The tremendous instability is pretty much certain, no matter what happens. It's baked, and talking about previous guests, as David Wallace Wells will tell you. Most of Saudi Arabia is actually going to be uninhabitable pretty soon. I mean, that's a kind of problem right there. And last thing I'll just say is that another reason why they're not just going to be like, we're just going to spend all of our cash on our balance sheet is that um, they also don't have enough cash on their balance sheet, I'm pretty sure, to fund the whole SABIC. But they plan on acquiring a number of other firms. This is supposed to be just the beginning. Well, they already have a stake in Uber. (laughs) Well, that is from the PIF. It's all this tangled web. Wow, we discussed so many, like, rich people, problem, evil empire kind of stuff. Did we not? It's, Can it's we say a, that? Yeah. Evil empire stuff? Evil empire. I mean, <laughs> so I feel like we should just wrap this up. <laughs> Basically, I think we can agree. I mean, I, I, can we agree that in terms of evil empires... Saudi Saudi is worse than Murdoch, and Murdoch is worse than Bezos. Oh, yeah. Easy. Yes. I think yeah. that's true. Because Murdoch, I mean... They haven't he hasn't actually dismembered done anyone. murder. <laughs> right. There's no bone saws. He's not torturing female rights activists. Although there currently. is debate, like, did the Australian media kind of influence the New Zealand shooter? But that's not the same as, again, the bone saw. Right. So, yeah, there you go. It's, it's gradations of evil. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't even know if Jeff Bezos is evil. He's just, he's just yeah. very, like, swole. <laughs> Where would the Sacklers fit in from last week? Where, I think so that, that's a good question. That's a good question. So <laughs> Sackler's not as evil as the Saudis. Right. right. Definitely more mm-hmm. evil than Bezos. But how do they compare yeah. to the Murdochs? That's a really good question. I feel like the Murdochs have really created global instability yeah. in a way. But then, I mean, the Sacklers, a lot of people are dead. It's true. But it's if you look at Which the Murdochs. feeding into the instability as well. Right. But would George W. Bush have been our president without the Murdoch family and then all the people who di- died in Iraq? I'm just saying Ooh, that like, that's this is more, more counterfactuals. That's yeah. basically all we're doing here. But. This is the real Forbes ranking, right? <laughs> yes. if, don't rank billionaires by how many billions they have. Rank them by how much blood they have on their hands. This is very much like The Good Place, which I've been watching, where everyone gets points based on how good or bad they are. And like, how would we uh, issue points to bad billionaires and do an index about it? I'm and sure Axios would do that. Are there... Are there are there any yeah exactly like <laughs> who's the goodest billionaire who who's like the the you most know, negative you know who of, thinks he's he's the goodest billionaire oh Bill Gates it's got to be Bill Gates he he's with the mosquitoes he has, he has in fact actually done a tremendous amount of good <laughs> he's done good 
Well, he hasn't released the mosquitoes yet. He's developed them, but he hasn't released them. There's <laughs> a whole. At some point, group. at some point, I'm going to do a very, very deep dive into the bioethics of mosquitoes. But I don't know if that's <laughs> going to make it onto Slate Money. Maybe it will. Let us know on Slate Money at Slate.com if the bioethics of mosquitoes is something which <laughs> you want to talk about because it is something I'm fascinated by. And and at some point, Michael Spector is going to have a book out, and we can talk to him about it. Let's have a numbers round. Can I go first? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. I want to go first you, just you in case first. by any chance you have the same number. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to front run you. 600 million pounds. Uh-oh. 600 million pounds? Yes. Is, this a, is this is, a Brexit number? This is the Brexit number. <laughs> so Goldman Sachs came out and they said this is the amount of money per week that the British economy has lost since the Brexit vote. Wow. 600 million pounds per week. Didn't they argue that by leaving the EU, they, they could get 350 get... million pounds per, what was it, month Something for like the that. NHS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that didn't happen. Didn't, Wrong. Yeah. Not didn't going to happen. So well. Yeah, the, the latest on Brexit as of this recording, I mean, who knows? But it looks like, I mean, you know, l- this time last week, I was very pessimistic and I thought we were like going to crash out on April the 12th, this coming Friday, with no deal. Now... Amazingly, Theresa May seems to have conceded that we Brits are going to have to have European elections on May the 23rd. And that was something she was adamant that she would not do. Now she's like, well, I guess maybe we might have to have European elections. Once we have European elections and we've elected people to the European Parliament, you know, it it looks like the, the, the UK could stay in the EU for a while, if not forever. Just drag it out. Just drag it. <laughs> drag it out until you get a confirmatory public vote or something. And then the confirmatory public vote will say, no way, we want to remain. And then we remain. And then we'll have just lost a few billion quid and it will all be fine. <laughs> uh, what's your number, Emily? My number is $70 million. Speaking of billionaires and inherited wealth, that's how much money Abigail Disney, who's the granddaughter of Roy Disney, says she's given away since she became an adult in this really cool interview with her on The Cut where she talks about like what it's like to have a lot of money. It's a super interesting interview and she does remind me a little bit of like my hypothetical idea of Mackenzie Bezos. <laughs> she says in the interview that if she wanted to be a billionaire, she could have been a yes. billionaire but like who on earth wants to be a billionaire yes. and so like I'm just not going to. She's one of these people who has a pretty clear idea in her mind of of like basically asking herself the question, do I want twice as much money as I have right now? And answering it by saying no. Yes. And I think for almost every human, there is an amount where having twice as much money as that, there's like negative marginal value to that extra money. And the only question is, where is that amount? And that Jeff Bezos is one of the very, very few humans who there is basically no amount where he wouldn't want twice as much. I think this is sometimes, a, uh, this, is my, this is my theory, is it's a misunderstanding of the, the issue with a lot of these very, very wealthy people, usually men, is that it's not about, at a certain point, it's not about the money. It's about winning. That, that's what it is. It's, it's yeah, about having more than someone sense. else. It's about winning. So in that sense, there is a significant marginal value, but it's not the money itself. Yeah, he just wants it's what to be it, on the represents. top of the list. It's like playing a video Maybe. game and you have yeah. coins. You want more coins than the other person has. Exactly. And, yeah. and perhaps he would actually be happier if he had $70 billion, but the second richest man in the world only had $20 billion. Yeah, than if right. he had 150 and the richest had 250. There's like a lot of research about this, right? Yeah. It, how happy you are about the amount of money you have is all about how much your neighbors have around you. And, and as far as Jeff is concerned, his neighbor is Bill Gates. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, they both live quite close to each other, right? In That's Washington. Nice. Yeah. 
My number is $989,500. I know what this number is. I think, I think, I think, I think. I <laughs> what think. is it? What is it? Is it the amount that the dad paid to the fencing coach to buy his house? Yes, and you're the, correct. And the kid gets into Harvard yes. as a result and he never lives in the house, which correct. is worth half as much? So the house was appraised at 549300 And this doting dad, who already had one son in Harvard and was a big fencing fan, decides that he's going to buy the fencing coach's house for rather more than 549300 In fact, he's going to buy it for $989,500 because he felt sorry for the coach because the coach was living 12 miles away from Harvard and it was a pe- long commute, especially in the winter. And so <laughs> and so this would allow the coach to move closer and that would make his life better. And, and he's, you know, a big fan of fencing, so that's what he wanted. And by sheer coincidence, his second son winds up getting accepted into Harvard through the fencing program and everything works out copacetic that seems totally for everyone. Fine, fine totally fine and then of course he never actually lives in this house he turns around and sells it for much less than he bought it for a few months later but you know what's money among friends <laughs> i bet we're going to start seeing more and more of these stories come out now that i feel like probably yeah. reporters are really digging for them in the wake of varsity blues my favorite thing is if you, it's a long story in the boston globe which is worth reading but you should read it through to the very end because It turns out that the way that the Boston Globe found out about this story was that when the house came on the market the second time, like actually on the open market, and the dad was selling it because like what the hell was he meant to do with it? A couple of home flippers looked at it and they were like, this is a fixer-upper because it was in really bad shape. And they were like, we're good at fixing up homes. We can buy it cheap, flip it for a profit. And then they realized how much it was asking. And then they realized that it had recently been sold for almost a million dollars. And they're like, this is just weird. None of this makes any sense. And then when the whole Vasty Blue scandal came out, They were like, oh, now it makes sense. And they phoned up the Boston Globe and told them. And the Boston Globe got the tip from the flippers, from the would-be flippers. Wow, that is a great story. (laughs) So thank you all home flippers out there for, like, giving us journalists hot tips. Thank you for everyone, especially Jessamine Molly, for producing today. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Do keep the emails coming. SlateMoney at Slate.com. Next week, we have an amazing episode because we have Natalie Juresco, who if you don't know who Natalie Juresco is, she's kind of this force of nature. She's an amazing woman. She used to be the finance minister of Ukraine. She is now running the financial oversight board in Puerto Rico. She has restructured more sovereign and quasi-sovereign debt than most of us have had, like, hot dinner. And <laughs> she is just an awesome person to talk to and a super interesting person. Her story is amazing. And we are going to talk to her about all manner of awesome interesting things i'm going to be in washington with her we're all going to be hanging out at the imf spring meetings and that's coming up next week on sleep money